I remember the first time I, I experienced an earthquake. I think the, uh, the first response I had was like, oh, this is awesome. Like the ground is shaking, things are falling off the wall. This is awesome. I can't believe how much fun this is. But then I got older and I started realizing that earthquakes are actually really quite dangerous. They have the power and capacity not only to, to hurt you, but really to destroy our civilization as it stands today. This is from a California earthquake here. And you can see that the freeway sits well above where it should be. And the rest of it is torn to pieces. Now, if you've ever walked on a freeway or just driven on it, you realize it feels so steady and so, so firm. You can trust it. You're driving over it. Thousands of pounds are always on, weighing down on it constantly. And yet, there it stands faithfully day by day. Sometimes when we go through earthquakes, it can also feel like it, it's, it's very intimidating when the ground beneath you, which feels so solid, is actually jolting left and right and causing you to stumble and fall. In today's text, we're going to get a sense of what it feels like as Christians when it feels like the ground beneath us is shaking. Our very foundation about trusting God and letting him lead us through difficult times is, is challenged. Why? Because even, even though we have these firm foundations that we're standing on, it feels like the very firm foundation we're trusting, God's goodness, is being challenged because God is letting bad things happen to us. This whole series, as we, as we enter week four, is really about helping you be ready to go into the fire. Hence the title, Into the Fire. The whole thing is about preparing you to have a mind and a heart that is firm and steady. In fact, it's a great compliment to what uh, Pastor DeCourcy preached this morning in main service, if you, if you heard that. Today's text is really going to challenge us to be ready to go into the fire in a much more uh, profound way. Peter's going to encourage you to think about it the right way. He's going to encourage you to do some things that are very, very hard. But he assures you that if you're willing to listen to what he's about to tell you, you're going you're gonna to be able to go into the fire and come out unscathed. How is that possible? How can that possibly happen? Well, you have to follow his logic here. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at verses 8 through 17 this morning. Now, as you make your way there, I need to point out to you that the large pieces of text that we were skipping. We're starting in, in chapter 3, but we skipped over chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through chapter 3, uh, verse 7. To be, to be short here, 11 and 12 really is about his desire for us to do battle against our own passions. He says, in this way, you're going to be a good witness. But then all the way through chapter 2, verse 11, uh, excuse me, 13 through chapter 3, verse 7, his, his, his summary, as you could say it, is submit and suffer. He says, first of all, submit to an unjust government, an unjust authority. Yes, you're going to hurt for that, but do it anyway. And then he says, oh, by the way, submit to your earthly masters. They're going to treat you poorly, but submit to them anyway. Oh, wives, by the way, submit to your unjust husband who's an unbeliever. Is that going to cost you? Absolutely, but do it anyway. Peter is giving no indication that you can expect anything less from a hostile culture. Now remember, this is happening in about AD 62. A.D., uh, Anno Domini, a uh, year of our Lord, so 2,000 years ago, give or take. Now remember, in AD 62, Emperor Nero had not yet ascended the throne in Rome. These guys are experiencing a lesser form of persecution. In fact, as you read through the, gospel, uh, the epistle of Peter, you'll find out that the kind of persecution this early church is suffering is really not a physical persecution. We have no indication from this text that they're being thrown into prison or tossed to lions or anything like that. Much of what you read in here is going to show you that they're being reviled, that they're, that they're being insulted. There's a lot of social ostracization. ostracization. They're, they're being socially outcast. <laughs> They're being socially outcast. And in that way, Peter's saying, hey, this may not feel good, but just trust me on this. You're going to have to endure for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your faith. Little did they know that a few years later, Nero would ascend the throne. And you guys know about Nero, right? Nero's that crazy whack job who loved little boys and would light Christians on fire to light his garden parties and throw them to the lions, literally. 
to be eaten up and torn to pieces. That was on the horizon. Now, Peter didn't know that, but the Spirit did. And so the Spirit sends this letter to, the, to Asia Minor to say, you guys need to be ready for what's about to happen because you're suffering now, but it's going to get worse. And the way that he tells them to endure suffering is profound and so antithetical, so countercultural to how you and I are prone to respond. Look at first at his, his first charge. As he, as he culminates this, he says, finally, in verse, verse 8 of chapter 3, finally, and that finally is there because he's summarizing all of his instruction from the last chapter and a half. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, it's interesting that Peter turns his attention back to the church. He's telling the church, okay, I want you to submit to government. I want you to submit to a bad master. I want you to submit to your unjust, ungodly husband, ladies. And husbands, you should love your wives uh, because they're the weaker vessel. He's giving instructions to all of society, all the various structures of society. And then he says, now church, here's how you should be acting with one another. Now there's something in that verse that you can't see, but I want to show it to you anyway. Let me try to point it out to you. The verse is built on a, what is called a chiastic structure. It's very cool when you, when you see it. And by the way, this chiastic structure is pretty common to Hebrew literature. If you read the Psalms, you'll see chiasm all the way through if you're paying attention. Now what is chiasm? Chiasm is when you're taking, uh, you're basically building a pyramid, with words. You're saying, here's a structure. You got, well, here, I think I pointed it out for you. Yeah. You got A, and then you got A. B, B, and C. So if you think about it again, the pyramid, A, A, B, B, C. And so what he's doing then is really pointing to the middle of the verse. He's saying, these two things fit, and these two things fit, and these two things point to the main thing, his main idea. So you'll see here that uh, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Unity of mind corresponds to a humble mind. And he's saying those two things go together. That's the way that you're supposed to think. And then he says, sympathy corresponds to a tender heart. That's how you're supposed to feel toward one another. And then, of course, the top of the pyramid, the point of his entire structure, the thing that really umbrellas the, the, the rest is brotherly love. And that really is how we know he's talking to Christians. He says you should have a brotherly love toward one another, not a love necessarily toward the unbeliever, but the kind of love that is common to families. That's called a chiasm. Um, when you look at the Psalms, you'll see chiasms all over the place. Again, they're meant to point you to the middle. And the middle kind of functions as this is my primary point. This is highlighting. This is underlining. This is boldifying my, my idea because I didn't have that. Re repetition is the other one, but this is the one you probably don't know. Peter's essentially saying to the church, I know you're about to go through trouble and you're currently acting, you're currently being assaulted with trouble, but my primary point and my concern, again, as you heard it last week, is I care that the church acts like the church. In fact, what he's saying, point number one, you can put it like this, you should be acting like God's redeemed people. Act like what you are. The world may be pressing in upon you, but when it comes down to who you guys are, you should be acting like the church. You should be a harbor, a safe house, a place for you all to rest and relax. How good is it when you're at school all day after a long, hard day, you go through all of your classes, maybe your third period was awful because your teacher was in a bad mood, and then you go to practice and your coach is all upset because the team lost the last game and you're not practicing well and everyone's underperforming. How good is it to go home and have peace? Or, to sit in, or, or how about at the end of a long day, you lay in your bed and it's like, ah, oh, like all of your troubles melt away, hopefully. In fact, I got this new thing recently that I'm absolutely in love with. It's called a weighted blanket. Have you heard of those? Those things are amazing. Um, it's, it's basically a blanket with like weights in it. That's why they call it a weighted blanket. <laughs> you put it on you and it's like, it's pressing down upon, like the hand of God is gently holding your body down. It's, it's, it's awesome. I love it. 
um, because it gives you that sense of security and it feels good. I don't know what it's supposed to do technically, but I really like having stuff on top of me. Like it feels good to have weight. And that blanket provides that safety and security that you, your mind kind of needs and enjoys. And, and, and Peter's saying when you get home to church, you should feel secure and safe. You should be among people that love you and care about you. You should be acting like God's redeemed people. All throughout the letter, Peter's concern for you and for me is that we, can, we continue to act like God's redeemed people. He gives five adjectives, and we already looked at them in their chiastic structure, so I'm going to break them down in a chiastic structure as well. God's people should first of, ha- first of all have unity of mind and a humble mind. Again, that's the way that we're supposed to think. There's a sense of harmony. We're united in spirit. We're rejecting the useless way of our former lives, and we're acting in a way that pleases God. It looks, like, uh, it looks like the kind of family that's harmonious. We're thinking the same way. We're acting the same way. We're, we're having a, uh, by the way, we can't think the same way if we're not willing to humble ourselves, right? The kind of unity that's required of the church is a unity that's willing to put away false teaching, to put on righteousness, and to live with humility. But that's not to say that we don't go to bat for orthodox teaching. There's there's a strain of Christianity that essentially says, hey, if we're going to do this Christian thing together, we have to be willing to compromise on some of our core beliefs and distinctions. Uh, For instance, uh, we're egalitarian versus complementarian. Egalitarian is that both of the sexes have not only uh, equal equal uh, equal value, but also have equal roles. And that's not true. Uh, biblically speaking, there are distinctions of roles. Girls have different jobs than guys do. And there's differences in, in, in how we're built and differences in how we relate, generally speaking. And that's part of Peter's argument there. But what he's saying is that the church needs to have a unity of doctrine, unity of mind. There's certain essentials about what you and I should believe that if we're not willing to believe those things, we can't be called Christians. For instance, if you believe that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he's not fully man and fully God, you don't have a place in the church. You can't rightly be called a Christian. You can't rightly be called someone who understands a Christian faith. And so Peter's saying, I want the church to have unity of mind, but that's not going to happen without humility of mind. It's going to have to happen where we understand that we're to uh, submit to one another as uh, as Christ, not submitted to the church, but as Christ showed the example for the church in Philippians chapter 2. Now, just real quick, Think, think about this with me for a second. Does not most of our problems in, in, in relationships occur because we don't have humble, unified minds? That's where most of us go wrong, right? When you're having a fight with someone, it's because we disagree. And there's often going to be not only a disagreement, but then like, you're wrong. Get with it. Follow my lead in this. Do what, I, do what I think is right. Peter's saying there is a sense in which we all agree to the right thing, but it's going to be humility that continues to bind us. The church will disappoint you. Church will disappoint you. The people sitting next to you will hurt you. It's so important that you understand this. The church is by no means perfect. She is not perfect, but she is Christ's bride. And the people sitting next to you, even though they're messed up in a lot of ways, hopefully we're all growing together in the kind of faith that honors Christ. I need you to understand this because here's the thing. Even though the the church is meant to be a safe harbor, a rest and a refuge against the the world, that doesn't mean that the people next to you are always going to do the right thing for you. People next to you may gossip about you, may accidentally hurt you in ways that are profound and significant. The church is not perfect, but the church is being perfected by Christ. It's important that we're committed to that, and the only way that's going to happen is if we're humble. Secondly, the way the church is supposed to feel toward one another, we're supposed to have sympathy and have a tender heart. Sympathy refers to our compassion, a willingness to share in suffering with other people. Um, Hebrews chapter 4 says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus himself sympathized with us. He's saying, you then, church, should be able to sympathize with one another. I confess that sometimes people say things, (laughs) 
Sorry, someone texted me during a sermon. Who should know better? Ryan D'Amato. Um, <laughs> um, I forgot what I was saying now. The church should be a safe harbor. We should have, oh, okay, I confess. There we go. That's where I was. There are times when people share with me their, their feelings and their emotions, and I'm like, that's dumb. <laughs> you should not be feeling that. That's, I don't understand that, that even though you're hurting, okay, I understand what you're saying that you're hurting, but I, man up, you <laughs> know, no big deal. But Peter says our hearts really should be able to, to be a compliment to one another. Say, okay, I don't fully understand what you're going through, but I can still feel sympathy toward you. I can still feel a sense of responsibility for you because not only are you just another person who I go to church with, you are actually someone God has given to me as my brother or sister in Christ whom I now share Christ with. I have an inheritance that will continue on forever because Christ has put you in my life. I need to care about you. I need to have a concern for you. And that's where tender heart comes in. It's a heart of compassion. It's showing care and responsibility to the person who, it's like your closest relationship on earth. Christians are to be emotionally involved with one another, which as you know is dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous to be emotionally involved with people because people are well, you get it, imperfect. And yet this is the kind of response Peter says should characterize the church. Guys, we can't be sipping tea here, okay? We can't be talking about, we can't be talking about each other like the world does. We have to be the kind of place that's willing to say, you know, I'm going to protect these people. I'm going to protect their honor. I'm going to protect my brothers and sisters. I'm going to make sure that everything that I do really does encompass brotherly love. Brotherly love. The word that underlies that is Philadelphos which should remind you, of course, of the city, right? The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Peter says that's what characterizes the church. We are to be a city of brotherly love, so to speak. We're to look like what God has designed. Love is the highest order and command, and that's why Jesus, again, remember, Peter's one of the main three in the circle, the Peter, uh, Peter James, and John. He says um, it's love that characterizes the church. John chapter 13, pe people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the way the church is to behave. And what's worse is that this is the way the church is to behave when the culture presses down on her. This is the way that you are expected to act in the church. And to add more to this, remember all throughout the letter, Peter has called the church to act like God's children. Remember in chapter one, we were to obey or as chapter 1, verse 14, we're to be like obedient children. We've been saved. We've been given an inheritance. We're like children. Uh, we're inheritors with Christ. Peter also calls us that we're, we're children of God. Peter calls us to recognize that you're not just an average part participant in a congregation. You are a family now. And as a family, there are certain rules that should govern how we interact with one another. All this to say, guys, I know that high school drama is really part and parcel with being in high school. Adult drama comes along with that too, but there should be a, a collective effort to say, this is how we want to act. This is how we are to be because of who Christ has saved us, uh, because of how Christ has saved us. First Peter chapter 3, looking at verse 9, he talks first to the church, and now he's talking about how the church is to act in the culture. And this is where it gets particularly hard. Look here with me. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling is another way for insult. Another way to say insulting or pressing down. Um, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 34. He says this. Uh, for, verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. One of the hardest lessons in Scripture that you are going to hear is in this next point. And it's simply this. Point number two, you need to do good to those who harm you. Do good to those who harm you. If you think about that from an earthly perspective, it, does, it makes no sense whatsoever. What kind of movie would Avengers be if, like, the Avengers sent Thanos a fruit basket for doing all that he did, you know? <laughs> like, we love Avengers because they go and avenge us. They cut the... Well, okay, never mind. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie yet, but they... Justice is served in the Avengers. The Avengers go and avenge, as they're supposed to do. But the movie would be lame if at the beginning of the movie you see Captain America and Iron Man sending him a gift basket and saying, hey, thanks for all you've done for us. We forgive you. If cops started writing congratulation tickets instead of tickets for, like, actual tickets for drunk driving or for robbing or for pillaging, they're like, hey, great job. You ran that red light. Here's 20 bucks. They don't do that. And because our culture doesn't work that way. Now, you have to understand that what's happening here is that God is not telling us through the pen of Peter that we should suddenly just say, hey, chaos is what reigns, anarchy, we shouldn't uphold the law, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't allow police to do their job because they should forgive, they should turn the other cheek, right? In fact, isn't that what people often tell you? Christian, aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek? Why are you even debating this? Why are you even trying to convert people? You should be taking the offenses lying down, don't worry about that. But what's happening here, Peter is not saying we should promote anarchy and a lack of rule, lack of regulation. What he's saying here is that Christians, when they suffer persecution, are to be willing to let that persecution happen for the good of those who are doing the persecuting and for the glory of God. He says you should be doing good to them. And then he lays out, what does that good look like? Well, he starts with the idea of not paying them back, not being an avenger. You can't Captain America yourself against the unbeliever. You can't let them, you can't, you can't like break their arm as they're punching you in the face for, ser for serving Christ. And that's the key and that's the criteria. So if you, see, uh, if, you, if you see something unjust happening, you see a guy robbing a bank, you don't turn the other cheek and say, well, I'm just going to let him rob the bank. He may have his issues. You know, I'm going to walk through the direction. Turn the other cheek. You don't help him rob the bank either. I'm going to do good to those who persecute you, right? I'm not going to pay him back. I'm going to help him rob the bank. No, uh, God wants you in that situation to, to do the right thing, to do justly. But when it comes to if someone's pressing down upon you as a Christian, Someone says to you, look, I, I'm going to make your life miserable until you deny Christ, until you get on the right side of history. I'm going, to, I'm going to make sure you know that I don't like you. Now, if it's just a personal acquaintance, it's maybe not as bad, but what if that's a teacher or a boss or your government? When that happens, and it's not an if, it's a when, when that happens, how will you respond to them? I can tell you your natural response will be to to get upset, to fight, to pay back, to put Captain America in the seat and have him pay back to avenge you. But that's not what God says for us to do. He says, don't be an avenger. Look again, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, again, what you're seeing here, I think, is clear that uh, Peter is pointing to a type of persecution that is, that is primarily social. It's not, he's not, they're not being physically assaulted. 
But Peter's saying if you're going to do good, you have to be committed, first and foremost, to not pay them back, to restrain yourself, just like, oh, by the way, Christ did. Don't pay them back. When someone slanders your name because you're a Christian, when someone calls you wicked things because you're a Christian, your job is not to pay them back in that same way. Ignore that slide and that one. Pay attention to that one. Romans 12, 19, I had, I had Lewis read it this morning. Uh, Paul says a lot of the same things. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. And there you go. Don't be an avenger. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, not you. Your job is not to simply say, you know what? You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's no, let it happen because God is the one who will repay. And there's two ways God will repay back the, 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 the sinner. Either A, he repays them back in hell where his just, just wrath is poured upon them, or B, his wrath is poured upon Christ because they get saved. Either way, you have no jurisdiction to take, to take justice into your own hands when people assault you for following Christ. This means for you, you have to be sober-minded about this and realize you're going to be taking some hits for the sake of Christ. You should not pay them back. You should also bless them when they curse you. This is a little more challenging to figure out what he means by this. Peter says, instead of reviling, instead of committing evil, he says, on the contrary, bless. This is a don't do this and a do do that kind of thing. A, t- a put off and a put on. What does he mean by this? Well, I think we have to go back to who Peter's teacher was. And that, of course, was Christ himself. In Luke chapter 6, I want to point your attention to this. Jesus gives several elements of what it looks like to bless those who curse you. Jesus already told his disciples, guys, it's going to happen. Here's what this is supposed to look like. Read it along with me. Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, he just stepped it up to a level that we, we rarely get to. Love them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I think that's the first element there. To bless them does, of course, imply you're praying for them. Verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. They're taking away your clothes. They're confiscating your property. Verse 30. Give to everyone who, let's just use the word asks there. Asks. I don't think this, I don't think it's meant to be understood as beg, as in a beggar on the corner. This is persecution. Give to everyone who asks from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Again, confiscation of property. They're cursing your name. They don't like you. They hate you because you follow Christ. And that's the context. Remember, this is not about civil jurisprudence. This is not about if someone's breaking into your car, you don't, you don't say, hey, stop, or call the police on them. This is about persecution for the sake of Christ. That's the context. Don't remove it from that. He's saying, if someone's taking your property, if they're cursing your name, you pray for them and let them do what they're going to do. Let them be unjust. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks from the one who takes away your goods. Don't demand them back. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, you do also to them. Do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Point being, this is how you're supposed to do good to them. You're going to be countercultural by loving people who are nothing like you which is what your father does, by the way. Your father in heaven loved you before you loved him. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Verse 34, and if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But you, you to love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now notice the very end here, the, the whole premise of this entire, this, entire, uh, this entire response from Jesus is that this is how God has treated you. 
as challenging as this will be for all of us, our response of doing good to those who hurt us is based on the fact that Jesus himself did good to us when we were hurting his name, when we were reviling against him. Bless them when they curse you. At the very least, you should be praying for them. That's one of the greatest goods that we can ask, and the prayer specifically is about praying for their salvation, forgiving them when they sin against us, allowing them to confiscate our property if they're doing it because we're Christians. Peter then goes on to say that we should guard the way that we speak about them. He's quoting Psalm 34 where he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Psalm 34 is about David being delivered from Abimelech or Achish, I think is another offshoot, another variant of his name. David says, whoever desires to, see, uh, to, desires to love life and see good days, and by the way, you need to ask yourself a question about that text there. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Both of those things convey the type of verbal response to people. They're saying, I hate you. You're an idiot. You're a jerk. You're, a, you're whatever. What's Peter using this text for? Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is Peter saying that if you do good things, that in this life you're going to see a great, you'll have a great life and you'll see good days? Or is Peter talking about the end time, the ultimate life, the ultimate good days? I think Peter is really pointing our attention here to saying the way that you speak about them should reflect the fact that you know that in the future, your best life is not now, but later. So in this life, you don't slander them. You don't speak evil about them. You guard your words. Does that mean we can't say, we can't call a sin a sin? Absolutely not. What he's saying is that you can't be the kind of person who's character assassinating, name calling, making up stories about them, slandering, lying against them. This is the kind of person who has a, a composed response to the, 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 the evil and the wicked person. Unwilling, like Jesus, who was like a lamb led to the slaughter, who didn't say a, a word, right? Remember, he's standing before Pilate and he's silent, except for the few responses he gave. He was silent. He didn't slander. He didn't lead to name calling. He, he kept his tongue. Now, I want you to pay special attention here, okay? Look at the word at the top there. You'll notice that the word for, uh, let me see here. Let me go back a quick second. Ah, that's not good. Okay, look at your Bibles. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for, for, for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I, I, I didn't spend a lot of time on this because we just don't have time to unpack this, but I need you to understand that in the, in the epistle of Peter, all throughout this, he says that there are certain callings that Christians have, and one of those is being called to suffer for Christ's sake, but he says, in order that, so that for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Here's what I think Peter is essentially saying, and I think this makes the point all the better. If you're unwilling to suffer for Christ, you will not see good days. You will not be given the life that comes, that comes along with it. Peter is not saying that by your works you earn your salvation, but by your works you prove your salvation. That if you're going to stand with Christ, that means being willing to suffer with Christ no matter how bad it gets. And in doing so, that's when you see good days. That's when you get to see uh, the, the life that God truly and, and desires for his people. You need to guard your words against them. Jesus said that it's our words that, uh, that, that produce, it's, it's our heart that produce, produces the words that we say. Our heart for the sinner ought to be love and compassion and not hatred Guard your words against them, but also seek reconciliation when possible. Verse 11 gives us that sense there. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Peter says, you should do the same thing that Paul says. You should try to have peace with all people. You should seek peace with all people. The whole purpose behind this young person 
And in fact, the goal of every single interaction you have with a non-Christian has always got to be, I want to see them saved. Sometimes Christians get a bad rap for that, for having ulterior motives and always trying to see people converted. And Okay, I I guess I I get the fact that some people can be put off by that because it seems like, oh, every time you're talking to me, you're always trying to do good to me so that I listen to your religion speech, right? I I understand the, the pushback on that. But you, have, you and I really do get the fact that if we're not doing that, that would be the highest degree of hate possible. Could you not see that? If we're not willing to talk to people and say, this is the most important thing you need to hear. If I don't say that to you, I hate you. I don't like you. But because we love people, we've got to see every single human interaction we have. Every single human interaction we have always has the underlying deepest motive of, I want to see you saved. That is what a Christian feels. That's what a Christian thinks. And that's why Peter's able to say at the very end of this, you, you need to seek peace with people and pursue that because you know that's going to provide an inroad for you to be able to share Christ with them. That's the ultimate goal of every Christian. At least that's the goal that we should have. Peter goes on to say, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Think about this, young person. Do you have the eyes and ears and the face of God in your favor? The king of the universe looks towards you with favor and delight if you're a believer. God listens to your prayer. God hears you when you cry. His face is towards you for your good. But for those who are evil, his eyes are not upon them in a favorable way. His ears do not hear their prayer. His face is against those who do evil. His face is against the, the, the wicked and the sinner. Those who hate God and revile his name, he is against them and he will be against them in the last day. So when it all comes down to it, our job is to do good to those, to not pay them back, to bless them when they curse and to guard our words against them so that we can seek reconciliation if and when possible. That's the ultimate goal of the Christian, to see people saved. And without that, we're not going to be able to do the kind of good we want to do. Peter concludes in these last few verses here. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You need to look that up later. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. One of the primary focuses of this text, and this is a text, if if you've studied apologetics at all, you've heard this before, to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. All of this that Peter is saying, essentially, is I don't want you to fear them. Instead of being afraid, I want you to be a bold evangelist. Or to put it differently, let's put it like this, chapter, uh, point number three, to be prepared to defend the faith. To be ready to speak for Christ. Because his expectation is that if you're doing good to those who harm you, and if you're acting like the family that God has made you to be, you're going to have opportunities. You're going to have opportunities. You may not have an opportunity to do a public debate with a Satanist like I did in high school but I'm sure people will give you the opportunity in your social circles, in your social media, your jobs, your schools, if you're living the life that Christ has called you to live. It's kind of like the movie, 
The Lion King. Scar says, be prepared. <laughs> Sorry, that was lame, I know. We need to be prepared, not for a coup, but really for when Jesus comes back to establish his rule and his reign. Be prepared. Here's how we get ready. You need to face your fear of people. This is probably one of the biggest things that you as a high schooler experience. It's the constant barrage of fearing people's opinion about you. And this is what leads to apps like that Facetune, whatever, that make people contort their faces and their bodies to fit a certain image and a certain appearance because we fear people's opinion about us. Jesus is calling us through the the pen of the apostle Peter to put fear aside. He says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peter recognizes that you can't fear God and man at the same time. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to face the fears of being ostracized for the sake of Christ. I'm going to be willing to stand with Christ. If that means I have to stand against everyone else, so be it. What can man do to you? What's the worst that can happen to you? I know social pain hurts. And perhaps at some point, maybe God calls you to physical pain to actually take a bullet for Christ or to have your, your head taken off for Christ. But what else can they do to you? Really? That's it. That's it. The short life you hurt, but then after that, nothing else. You need to face your fear of people, but also you need to exalt Christ highest in your life. And I think that's really where, where Peter goes. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your heart, it's not, it's not purely emotional. We think of the word heart as being the, you know, our, our emotions, but heart is really your whole life. It encompasses all that you think, say, and do. Peter is saying, with your life, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's got to be first in your life. And if you're going to stand up against the culture and against the world and the flesh and the devil, you've got to have Christ first in your life. Nothing else will sustain you. You're going to give up. It's too hard. The pressure is too strong unless Christ is everything to you. Christ must be everything to you. And is that going to be a natural response of your heart? No. You've got to fight for that. Don't fear them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does the word holy mean? Set apart because Christ himself is the one who is fully set apart. This actually is a quote from, from Isaiah chapter 2. It's more of an illusion than a, perhaps a direct quote. But here's how Isaiah puts it. He says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Peter is alluding to this text as he talks about Christ himself. Now, I want you to focus on something that you can't see here. In fact, I'll point it out to you. The word that Peter uses, or rather Isaiah uses for Lord there, is capital O-L-O-R-D, which of course is the personal name of God in the Old Testament, which means what? Yahweh. He says, but Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. And then Peter takes this same text and applies it to who? Applies it to Jesus. We should honor Christ the Lord as holy. I don't think Peter in his mind, this would, this would have been blasphemy for really anyone else, but Peter understands who Jesus is, and he says we should honor Christ the Lord as holy. He needs to be highest exalted in our life. I need to share the gospel intelligently. This is where your life apologetic comes in. Your life apologetic really starts with the good works that build a foundation for you to speak to others with authority. It's showing them that, yeah, I believe what I'm saying here. I live what I'm saying. And therefore, I want you to hear my message, the gospel. This means you have to know your Bible. 
That means you have to know your Bible, young person. You have to know your Bible. You have to have a good sense of what the Bible teaches. If it's just listening to me on Sunday, you're not getting enough. And this isn't going to sustain you. You need to get in your Bible every single day and let God change you, help you to think right, because you and I are broken. And apart from God's word, we're not going to do the right thing. We're not going to think the right thing. You need to learn to share the gospel intelligently, which means knowing your Bible, always being prepared to make a defense. This is apologia. You know the word apologia. This is a reason defense, a legal defense even. When people ask you about why you're a Christian, you really believe in a dead Messiah rising from the dead? The Jewish zombie? You really believe that? You believe that? You believe that God created the world from nothing? How stupid. What an idiot you are. Really, you believe that we should, you, should, you should reject women's rights? Who are you to put your rights on women's bodies? What kind of Neanderthal are you? Really, you follow the Christian religion, a book that is thousands of years old. Oh, by the way, do you realize you don't have any of the original manuscripts? You have no autographs of this book. Do you realize that? And you're following this? Christian, what about all the contradictions in this thing? This is a big book. There's a lot of contradictions. Did you know that? Young person, we're at a place in human history right now where we're going back to the way the church has historically operated in obscurity and pain against a culture that is hostile toward her. That's normal for the church. What we've enjoyed for the last 300, 400 years, how old is it? Okay, what we've enjoyed for the last several hundred years as a popular kind of Christian culture within America is gone, or at least it's just, just about gone. And so everything that you assume to be right and good and true is not an assumption that the culture makes. You need to be able to say, in my Bible, here's what I believe, here's why I believe it. And have a reasoned defense for the hope that you have. Otherwise, someone's going to come and cut you at the knees and challenge your faith and say, well, I'm not ready for that. I don't, man, I'm having a crisis of faith right now because I don't know what I believe. I don't know why I believe what I believe. I've just been going to church. My parents make me go. They believe it. I feel like that's good enough for me. Pastor Rod believes it. I feel like it's good enough for me. I, I don't want you to depend upon me. I want you to know your word well enough, your word well enough to be able to say, this is why I believe. I see it, I know it, I understand it. God has shown me in his word why this is true. You need to be ready to share the gospel intelligently. And that means also knowing the culture that you're sharing it in. Learn to share the gospel intelligently. Aim to win the person, not the argument. Although I hope you win the argument as well, but aim to win the person. Loving them, showing respect, care, and consideration for them. I also want you, I think Peter wants you, to fear God and speak the truth, to not let people intimidate you to doing the wrong thing, but rather to know the right thing, to share it winsomely, and to ultimately fear God as you share it, which means we have to be willing to share the whole truth, and truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, even though it may be unpopular. And then lastly, we're going to trust God with the consequences whether they attack you, whether they violate you, whether they, they spurn your name, no matter what the result is, we're going to say, God, I'm trusting you with whatever happens. You're the one in control. I'm going to let you do what you do. And that's how I'm going to be ready. You need to be ready to be thrown into the fire. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3 
tells her story. He says, now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Said King Neb. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the story, right? They're thrown into the fire. God, of course, does spare them, but they were thrown into the fire. And so may it be with you. If you choose to follow Christ, and I, I, I hope you do, and you continue to affirm your resolve to trust and to love him, you're going to suffer. The whole letter is about preparing you for that. You can be just like Sanctus, who suffered under Marcus Aurelius. You might know Marcus Aurelius from his famous work, Meditations. He's pretty popular right now because his book, Meditations, is making a rebound from, because of guys like uh, Tim Baldhead, four-hour four work week. Tim what? No, no, not that Tim. Anyway, Marcus Aurelius was not a, a, was not a fan of Christianity. You can think about Sanctus, who was a deacon of Vienna, who had red-hot plates of brass placed upon the tenderest parts of his body and left there until they burned through to his bones. Or you can be like Blandina, who was torn by the lions, scourged, and put into a net and tossed about by a wild bull, and then placed naked into a red-hot metal chair. When Blandina's torturers were unable to make her recant her faith, they killed her with a sword. Persecution is in the DNA of the Christian faith, and it's not to say that everyone's going to suffer the same way that Blandina and Sanctus did, but you should be ready for whatever comes your way. And the only way to be ready is to be mentally prepared to know God's word and to let him prepare you in your soul for what's about to take place, to know God's word, to love it, to trust it, to act like God's redeemed people, to do good to those who harm you, and to be prepared to defend the faith. Let's pray.